Thank you. I love it when you applaud for me as I come up. I, I just do that to keep Troy humble, and uh, it's a calling. No, but thank you. If you will, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And again, we're looking at verses 1 through 7. Uh, we will go 4 through 7 uh, this morning. The last couple of Sundays, we've been looking at the front end of this uh, uh, paragraph of Scripture where Paul has been talking about how we uh, were dead in our trespasses, how we were dominated by the prince of the air, and how we were children of wrath. We were doomed and condemned. Um, and that's all the setup for verse 4. Now, uh, I want to point out a, a couple of things. First, our, our whole aiming point last two weeks has been verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy and, and because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Um, that's the turnaround. I mean, if, if you want to know why the gospel is good news, it's because of those two words, but God uh, just changed everything because of his grace and mercy towards us. Uh, so that, that's the first thing to point out. Uh, the second thing is that in uh, Paul's presentation here, he, he's really trying to work us down to get us to an understanding of the word grace. Uh, and that's why at the end of verse 5, if you have the uh, ESV translation, uh, or your translation uses dashes, it says, uh, dash, by grace you have been saved, dash, almost like it's a, a, a little drop-in, and then he goes on to talk about something else. I can almost see that, that what Paul was doing was dictating the letter to somebody, and he's saying, well, I want you to say that, uh, that we were doomed and we were um, uh, children of wrath, uh, but God, um, because of his mercy and grace, he, he has uh, mercy and love, uh, he has uh, lifted us up. Oh, by grace you have been saved. No, wait a minute, I didn't finish. Uh, and he has seated us on the right hand of, uh, in Christ, and you know, those kinds of things. In other words, it's almost like he blurts out where he's going before he gets there, right? And uh, uh, that, that's why that is there. But the idea is that grace is where we're headed. You know, next week, you know, by grace you have been saved. That's where we're headed. And all that we've been talking about the last two weeks and what we'll talk about today is getting to this grace that has, that has been at work in our lives, okay? So that's why we're reading what we're reading. Let's read it. Verse 1. Uh, but you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, for, uh, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of darkness or, and disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, you are so constant and faithful toward us. You are unchanging and unending in your sovereign working of your will around us. And uh, you provide for us, and, and, and never do we go without. And because you are so good and so faithful to us, we are so often neglectful and casual towards you. Because you are so reliable, Father, we forget to ask, we forget to thank, we forget to praise you and give you the glory. And so, Father, I would pray that your Holy Spirit would awaken us to the uh, just endless ways in which you work in our lives, 
the, the, the multitude of ways in which you enrich us and the ways in which you sustain us and carry us and, and reprove us, correct us, and grow us and lift us up, Father, that we would ever be aware of who you are in our midst so that we would constantly give you the praise and the adoration that you alone deserve. Father, we know that we are slow to, uh, to, to pray and slow to thank you and slow to give you the glory. But, Father, let your Holy Spirit make us quick to your praise. And I ask it in Jesus' name. I was uh, reading up on Amazing Grace uh, this week and came to find out some things about it, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. Uh, Amazing Grace was written by John Newton in 1759, and it was not that popular. Uh, he, of course, wrote it in England, and uh, in uh, the English hymn books, it found a place in some of them, not in others. It was uh, just sort of viewed as a nice set of words, really. He didn't write the tune, uh, neither did his uh, um, co-author, if you will, uh, William Cowper, who was assembling a, a book of hymns. Uh, but uh, it, it just went fairly unnoticed. But it was brought to America where there were revival meetings going on, where people were preaching and people were getting saved, and they wanted to sing. And um, somehow this hymn, these words, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, came into American revivalism, and throughout the end of the 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s, it became very popular. It didn't have a single tune to it. In fact, it was set to about two dozen different uh, tunes uh, that it was sung to. The tune that we just sang that it's normally used now is a tune called New Britain. I have no idea what that means, but I thought I would uh, just bring that up. But uh, uh, it's, it's become very popular. It was used by revivalists in the tent revivals of the late uh, 1800s into the early 1900s, and it became very popular. It filtered its way sort of into the folk music of of American culture, and it migrated into African-American gospel music. It became a song that was at the center of the um, uh, civil rights movement into the 60s. Uh, it, it's hard to figure why a song written by an Englishman who'd been a slave trader would become a theme song of the civil rights movement until you realize it is amazing grace that, that brings us together. But it became very popular in that sense. Now, it really crossed over, if you will, when a lady by the name of Judy Collins made a record in which she sang Amazing Grace. She had been at a, um, what's called an encounter group. Uh, think of it, kind of like alcohol, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, that was her problem, but it was an encounter group, and they were all arguing with each other, and somebody turned to her and said, hey, help us sing something, because they were fighting with each other. And the only thong, song she could think of was a song that her mother had taught her, and that was Amazing Grace. So she started singing Amazing Grace. Her producer was there. He said, hey, we've got to make a record out of that. So she sang Amazing Grace, and she sang it a cappella. And uh, a cappella means without music. I did that for Troy's sake. But, because uh, <laughs> you didn't get it the first service. <laughs> But, uh, uh, but she sang it a cappella, and you know, in the first stanza, she just sang just her voice. Beautiful uh, recording, you can still hear it. And uh, then the second verse, there was just some background voices humming along. Third verse, they were singing with her. Fourth verse, they were all, you know, just going full bore. And uh, that song actually made the top 100. It was number eight on the top 100 charts. Amazing Grace. This is towards the end of the 60s. 
Well, there were some folks who belonged to the British Army. They were a part of the um, senior Scottish regiment uh, in the British Army. And they thought, well, we can do that too, but we'll do it with bagpipes. And so they made a recording of Amazing Grace with the bagpipe. And it started out with just a single bagpipe, and then other pipes followed on the second verse until finally... In other words, it was nothing but Judy Collins done, done with bagpipes instead of Judy Collins. Uh, but that song... That record became very, very popular and hit the charts. And that's why today people just go nuts about playing Amazing Grace on a bagpipe. It has nothing to do with John Newton or the origins of the song. It's not Scottish at all. It's just that we like the bagpipe. And so, um, you know, uh, it's sort of become kind of like a common cultural hymn. You know, when in doubt, sing Amazing Grace. Um, And people give it all kinds of meanings of whatever they want it to mean. But if you ask John Newton what it would mean, he would say, this is my life story. These these aren't just words. This isn't poetry. This is biography coming at you. So when I'm talking about amazing grace, it is the sweetest sound of all to me because it saved a wretch like me. See, John Newton, uh, some of you know this story. You may not know the whole story, but John Newton grew up, and, and then he went to sea with his father as a very young lad, and he was a, learned his seamanship and so forth with his dad. And when he was 18 years old, his dad retired from uh, the sea, and John Newton, uh, the plan was that he would go to Jamaica and run a plantation. That, that was the idea. But John Newton was something, shall we call, an obstinate child, sort of stubborn. Uh, you've read about them, and uh, they didn't want to do what his parents wanted him to do. And so instead, he got a job on a merchant ship. Well, at that time, what the British Navy would do is if they didn't have enough guys to work their warships, they would find a merchant ship, go on board it, and pick out a couple of guys to come join the Navy, see the world. And they found John Newton. So he was impressed, that's the word for it, he was pressed into the the British Navy. Now, John Newton had such a foul mouth. His language was so obscene and so vulgar and so profane that even the British sailors didn't like him. Uh, I mean, you've got to go a far piece to be able to cuss that badly, but he was able to do it. They, they, they wrote down that he could make up words they had never heard before, but they knew they were bad. <laughs> John Newton didn't get along with people. In fact, he tried to desert. He said, I've had enough of this. And he tried to desert from the British Navy. They caught him, brought him back, and they gave him eight dozen lashes for trying to desert and broke him down to common seamen. Things did not get better. Nobody liked John Newton. It was so bad. Thank you so much. It was so bad. It was so bad that when his ship encountered another merchant ship, the Royal Navy put him on the merchant ship. I mean, it was supposed to work the other way, but they couldn't stand the guy, and they put him on a merchant ship. It was called the, uh, the Pegasus, and uh, this was a ship. It did not uh, carry slaves, but it was carrying cargo to be traded for slaves later on in that sort of slave triangle that was going on. And so he was on the Pegasus. They didn't like him either. And so when they got to Africa, they actually gave John Newton to a slave trader. As in, they sold him into slavery. 
And the slave trader gave John Newton to his wife, who was African, and she treated him like all the other slaves, which was not very well. Here's John Newton in 1748. He's literally a slave in Africa. And his dad pleads with a friend, go find my son. His friend gets on a ship, it's called the Greyhound, and uh, we would say by circumstance, by happenstance, we know it's the grace of God, but this, this ship happened to find John Newton and took him out of slavery and put him on board the ship and gave him a job on the ship. Newton had not changed yet. But a storm arose, and it beat against the ship for days on end, day after day after day. And during the course of that that storm, John Newton decided that he just might die, and maybe he better come to grips with who God is. This storm was so bad that Newton had to tie himself to the ship's pumps with another sailor while they were pumping out the bilges. He stood 11 hours without a break at the wheel trying to keep the ship on the proper course so it wouldn't be swamped by the waves coming over the stern. And when he got back to England, John Newton became a Christian. I wish I could tell you that at that moment his life turned around like a St. Augustine. But all that happened was his language got better. He still dealt in slaves. He went to sea on slave ships, and he was still involved with it. He invested his money in slavery, in human trafficking. And over the years, God was dealing with him. And uh, I think it was like 1755, he had done so well as a crewman on the slave ships that there was an owner who said, I'll let you be captain of, his, of your own slave ship. He had risen to the heights of that trade. And he didn't go. Not because of conviction, not because he had a change of heart. He didn't go because he had a stroke. He actually had a stroke. Medical historians looking at it now say he probably had a stroke. Folks, if you've ever wondered why something happened to you, if you've ever wondered why something took you away from your life's dream, if you ever wondered why your life was going a course that you liked and suddenly something happened and stopped you and you had to go in a different direction, let me tell you something. Sometimes God is trying to save you from yourself. John Newton had a stroke, and as a result of that, he never went to sea again. I wish I could tell you that he got out of the slave trade. He didn't. He kept his money involved with it for another decade. But during that time, God kept working on his heart and working on his heart and working on his heart until finally he came to the realization of the utter sin that he was committing and in which he was involved And later in life, he referred to it as that which makes my heart shudder that I was ever involved in this. God turned him around. It took time. But in the middle of that, in 1759, he wrote Amazing Grace. Now, the original title of that hymn was not Amazing Grace. The original title was Faith's Review and Expectation. It was uh, it, it, uh, John Newton saying, I'm going to look back at my life and review through the eyes of faith what has happened to me. And I'm going to tell you what I expect to happen to me. 
We didn't sing it, but a moment ago, uh, a moment ago, but had we uh, sung all the verses, one of the lines we would have sung is, you know, uh, that, that grace has brought me safe thus far, grace will lead me home. When he wrote that, he was not there yet. God was still working on him, but grace had brought him that far, and grace will bring him home. Folks, God doesn't send us grace so that we're on the team. And now he says, see if you can keep a spot on the team. You can be on the team, but now you've got to score points and you've got to run plays and you've got to perform and you've got to produce. And if you don't, you're off the team. Grace does not say you're on the team and you have to work to keep on the team. Grace does not say you can get on the team, but you've got to be good enough to get on the team. Grace says God has put you on his team and he will use you to his glory and he will keep you on his team for all eternity and his grace will lead you home. You see, when John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, he wasn't talking about nice ideas. He was talking about the life-transforming power of God to change his life. It truly was for him amazing grace. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Um, I really am going to get to the Scripture. I'm going to do that right now. But that's what we're looking at. We're looking at God's amazing grace And it's not amazing because I needed a two-syllable word to start a hymn. It's amazing because we can't understand it. And we cannot comprehend it. We can't quite wrap our minds around why God would love us and be gracious to us the way he is. Paul, in talking about it, has already set it up. He said, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were following the course of this world and the course of the prince of the air. And not only that... But we were children of wrath. We deserved condemnation, he said. But when you look at what God has done, we were children of wrath. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy. You see, this is the motivation for God's grace. He is rich in mercy, not grudging in mercy, not whimsical in mercy, not haphazard in mercy. God is rich in mercy. He is a merciful God. If you want to have some kind of understanding of what God's mercy is like, just remember that Jesus saw the crowd. He saw the multitudes, and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that they were wandering around. They didn't know what to do with their lives. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how to get there. They were like sheep wandering around without a shepherd. And the scripture says, if you've got a polite King James, he was moved with compassion. If you've got a Greek text, you will read, he saw them like sheep without a shepherd and it tore him up. It put a knot in his stomach. It put a wrench in his gut. That's how much he hurt for these people. You see, mercy sees the pain, sees the problem, sees the brokenness, sees the confusion. Mercy sees the people wandering like sheep without a shepherd. And mercy is moved, moved to the innermost being. You want to understand the mercy of God, remember the children of Israel as they were in the land of Egypt and they had gone there to get away from a famine and there they discovered bondage and they cried out to God for some 400 plus years they cried out to God and God in mercy heard them and then sent a deliverer Moses to lead them out of bondage to the promised land 
It's a very involved story about the grace of God at work every moment in the life of the children of Israel. But here's the thing. The mercy of God not only sees us in our suffering, but sends a deliverer to bring us up out of our suffering. That's why we know that God is rich in mercy, not miserly and begrudging in mercy. He is rich in his mercy toward us. Jesus told the parable about a, a, a man who was a master, and uh, uh, he was settling accounts. He was going through the books, and he found out that one of his servants had kind of absconded with uh, uh, the funds, about 10,000 talents, which in today's uh, monetary system would be roughly a bazillion dollars. And so um, he had he'd taken all this money, and the master brought him in and said, you've taken all this money. Pay it back right here, right now. And the guy said, you know, I can't do that. I don't have the money. I can't repay you. He says, well, fine, I'll just throw you in prison, and you and your family will sell them off, and we'll make a little bit off of you. The guy said, just give me a little more time. I'll pay it off. You can hear the master saying, yeah, right, sure. But he looked at his servant. And he forgave him the debt. Not partially, not conditionally. He just forgave the debt. You know the rest of the story? This servant went out and he found a friend of of his who owed him $5. And he grabbed him by the collar and said, you owe me $5, give it to me. Guy says, I I don't have it, I can't pay you now. He says, well, I'm going to throw you into prison. He says, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Give me time. He says, no, and threw his friend into prison because he owed him $5. Word of that got back to the master. He called in the first servant. He says, what have you done? Why did you throw your friend in prison? You shouldn't have done that. I forgave you. You should have forgiven him. And then do you remember the verse that is there? It says, because I showed you mercy, you should have shown mercy to your friend. You see, the mercy of God has an impact on our lives where we are moved to be merciful ourselves and to show the mercy of God in our dealings with others. God's rich mercy is a life-transforming mercy. And so Paul says, yes, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because, this, back to the text, because of his great love, because of the great love with which he loved us. Oh, we could talk uh, for hours, won't do it today, but could talk for hours about the love of God and what it means and how, how uh, strong and vital the love of God is in our lives. But if you want to know the love of God, just think about a father who has a son, and the son has taken all the money he can out of the family earnings and the family estate. And his son has gone off, and he's wasted all the money, and he's gone off into a far country, and now all he's doing is feeding the pigs. Word has gotten back to the father, and his heart is broken because he loves his son. And every day he gets up, he goes to the gate, and he looks down the road, waiting to see the shadow of his son coming home. And every day he returns back to the house. The son has not come home. Every day the father goes to wait. Every day he goes back disappointed. But one day he looks down the road, and at the rise of the hill he sees a silhouette. He sees the shadow. 
He loves his son so much, he recognizes the shadow of his son. He goes running down the lane. The son says, Dad, I have a little speech I want to give you. Dad says, forget the speeches. Hugs his son, kisses his son, puts a robe on his son, puts a ring on his finger and, and, and bells on his toes. And Well, I know, it's you know, shoes on his feet. But anyway, but, but, but what he says is, son, I love you so much. You are still my son. This is the love of God for us. Oh, the, 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 the depth of God's love for us. God's love is limitless. And by that, I don't just mean that it's infinitely big. What I mean is there's no limit to whom God can love and whom God does love. See, it turns out God is really good at forgiving people. He's had to do a lot of it. God is really good at restoring people. Turns out he's had to do a lot of it. And God is really good at loving people. And it turns out he does a lot of it. Because of the riches of his love, God's love just overwhelms everything. It overshadows everything. God's love is sovereign over everything. There's no power on earth and no power in hell for that matter that can withstand the love of God. There is nothing you can do that can set you outside of the power of God's love to claim you and redeem you. There is nothing we can say that will take us outside of the orbit of God's love when he chooses to reach down and draw us unto himself. God's love overwhelms everything. God's love is measureless. God's love is infinite and eternal. God's love is everlasting. God's love is rich and deep and wide for us. And it is out of this mercy and it is out of this love that God has sent his grace into our lives. Paul puts it this way. Uh, verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were wretched. You know that line in, in Amazing Grace, saved a wretch like me? Nobody wants to sing that anymore. You know, it's been rewritten. Have you ever opened a hymn book and there it was? That saved a soul like me. That saved and set me free. You know why it's changed? Oh, well, it's psychologically unhealthy to think of yourself as a wretch. Why, you need self-esteem and positive thought process. The real reason is that when you put the word wretch there, it focuses things to where they really are. You see, if I can just say, oh, oh, the grace of God that saved somebody just like me, that means I was the victim. You know, all these bad things happening to me, somebody else did it. It was circumstances. It was life just dealt me a raw deal. I didn't deserve all this. Thank you, God, that I got out from under these people who were victimizing me. No, when Newton wrote that, he said, that saved a wretch like me. It was my fault. It was my decisions. It's what I had done. It is what I had wanted. Oh, praise God. He doesn't deal with us with what we want. He deals with us according to what he desires for us. You know, that's, that's what grace is. And if you don't understand the wretchedness of our lives apart from Christ, you will not know the depth of the amazing grace of God. Well, I interrupted myself a moment ago. But God being rich in mercy, okay. Um, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were wretched, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up in Jesus. The power of the resurrection now put into our lives. 
the power of the resurrection to take away our sins and to set us in a new way of life that we would live for the glory of God in Christ. He raised us up, made us alive with Christ. It's like Paul says, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. By grace we've been saved. You know, by grace we've been saved. And then he says, um, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. You remember we spent a, a, quite a bit of time talking about how God had raised Jesus up and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here Paul says, that's what God has done for us already. When he saves us in Christ, with Christ, we're raised up, seated with him in the heavenly places. That's the action of grace. That's what grace has done for us. But then finally, and very quickly, I want for us to see the purpose of grace, and it is this, so that in the coming ages. Now, uh, I found two interpretations of what coming ages would refer to, and I think they both have something to say to, uh, uh, about the subject. One is that the coming ages is like, well, when Jesus comes again and, and uh, the millennial kingdom and all that, you know, when we get to heaven, we're all going to talk about the marvelous grace of God. Folks, that's true. That's absolutely true. But here's the other part of it. In the coming ages of world history, we are going to talk about the grace of God. And so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, that we would sing the praises and the glory of God, beginning now and for all eternity of the wondrous grace of God. This is amazing grace, folks. And if you don't know this grace, if Jesus is not personal to you, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you, you can be baptized, you can be a member of a church, you can go to church your whole life, you can memorize Bible verses, you can be a very good person. But if you've never had a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus Christ, where you fell head over heels in love with him and realized the depth of your need, and the magnitude of his grace, I just invite you right now. Jesus, come into my heart. Be Lord of my life. Forgive me of my sins. Thank you for saving me. But friends, you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, understand the amazing grace of God is still at work. The amazing grace of God is still deep and wide. It, it's, it's as deep as the mercy of God, as wide as the love of God. That the amazing grace of God is still for us today. You know, his grace is greater than our sin. Turns out his grace is greater than our hopelessness. His grace is greater than our despair. His grace is greater than our faults. His grace is greater than our confusion. His grace is greater than our brokenness. His grace is greater than anything we can imagine. Great is the grace of our Lord. And this grace is for us. It transforms our lives. This grace doesn't give up on us. What I want to say to you is that, you know, this morning if you're struggling, you know, you're sitting in the pew and you're there and you're a very nice Christian and very, you know, very uh, uh, well-appointed and every, every, everyone's looking at you and they say, oh, wow, what a marvelous Christian person. And yet you know the depths and the ugliness of your thought life or the depths and the ugliness of your attitude. They know that you're harboring a resentment. Maybe, who knows how long ago it was, but all you know inside of you that there are things there that don't look like Jesus. What I want to tell you is the grace of God has brought you to this place thus far, and the grace of God will bring you home. He may have to work on you for a while, but God can take that away by his grace. There's probably somebody in your life, you may be able to give them a face and a name right here and right now, that you're just not treating that person with very much mercy or kindness. You're not treating that person with very much grace. The grace 
flowing into your life is to flow out of your life into the lives of others so that the Father would be magnified because of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, this amazing grace is not poetry, it's biography. It's not just words. It's how God changes us. And so what I want to invite you to do is to receive the Savior and then just live in the grace that God showers upon us in Christ Jesus. Just live in that grace, giving God all the glory because his grace in Christ is truly an amazing grace. Let's bow in prayer. And Father Heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit indeed would take possession of our lives and just reveal to us day by day and moment by moment those things that you're working on and give us the joy of surrender and the joy of just feeling your reproving and correcting hand working graciously in our lives. Father, I pray that you would keep us focused on our Savior so that Jesus would be absolutely first and foremost in all that we say and do so that our lives would indeed bear testimony to the richness of your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.